Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks, two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hello and welcome to The Freelancer Show. This is episode 316. And today we, or I guess I should say I, am going to be talking about how to target management or the C-suite as a freelancer. Uh, Today on the panel, it is actually just me, Eric Dietrich. And so I will be working my way here through a solo episode on this topic. This actually came about, um, my business Hit Subscribe has a Slack with a number of authors who are, uh, well, so we do content marketing. It's a content marketing agency, and all of our writers are software developers, uh, many of whom are freelancers. So that can be a a good source of topics. And somebody in that venue asked about uh, the idea of targeting management or the C-suite for freelancers. So Let's talk through that here today. So in response, I guess, to the the general question, the problem is articulated best up front, perhaps by pointing out that if you're a software developer or, you know, more broadly speaking, some kind of engineer or knowledge worker uh, that's an individual contributor historically in your career, whether as an employee or on your own, you are quite probably used to speaking a lot to your peers rather than your buyers. So this involves things, you know, as extracurriculars that might be going to or speaking at conferences, uh, user groups, um, writing blogs, reading blogs, going on Twitter, whatever the case may be. You do an awful lot of speaking to and I guess subsequently trying to impress your peers. And this is pretty understandable. Part of, I guess, craft is wanting to improve, wanting to get better, wanting to demonstrate mastery, to learn from other people. And there's you know, absolutely nothing wrong with that, but it is a habit that we get into. Um, and this is perhaps reinforced by the world of salary salary employment or kind of staff augmentation style freelancing where you have job interviews. So the way that you get work through a job interview is that you go in and you're usually trying to sell your peers on your merits as a... Uh, um, well, and you know, in the case I'm talking about here as a software developer, but in whatever it is that you might be doing as a freelancer. Um, so that all becomes very natural. And there's a tendency to fall into this pattern of thinking that you get good at what you're doing and the rest sort of sorts itself out. You'll do well in interviews, you'll speak at conferences, things will go well. And then it's one of those, you know, that's step one, step two is the dot, dot, dot. Step three is profit. So in the broadest terms, that's kind of where we often wind up in in the world as freelancers, um, especially if we're doing a lot of contract work that looks like individual contributor type work. So that's all well and good. But like, let's take the case of software developer, uh, again, could apply to any sort of, you know, professional knowledge worker type role. Uh, But in the case of a software developer, you're used to impressing your peers, but when you think of um, yourself as a business, uh, you're not really 
selling to your peers, those are not your buyers. Your buyers are going to be the people with the kind of money to spend that purchases app dev. So if you sign on and you're doing three to six month engagements, um, you can figure, let's call it, um, say at $100 an hour, you're talking about, um, oh goodness, what is that? You know, well, it's in the tens of thousands of dollars. So I guess at a, a year, that would be 200K. So you're talking about, you know, like a, I don't know, 40 to 80K engagement for something that long. Your peers do not have forty dollars or $60,000 to spend on your app dev services. So somehow or another, there is a person that is going to be signing a check or a series of checks in order to pay you. And that person is not going to be one of your peers. That is going to be one of the people that we're talking about today. So management or the C-suite, and I'll delineate those things here shortly. But the idea is one of the first things you start to figure out as your freelancing career moves along and, and you get more into it is that speaking to your peers is all well and good. Impressing your peers is all well and good. But somewhere out there, there is somebody that is writing large checks and that is ultimately your buyer. So the natural question at this point is the one that we're talking about today, which is how do you speak to those people? How do you target them is the actual question. How do you get in front of them? Um, what do you say that appeals to them, et cetera? So let's, you know, kind of walk through that um, and, and the important distinction that's happening here. These are people in general that have budgets. And I will say that management to the C-suite is actually a pretty broad range. If you've kind of existed going along, you know, doing work that a programming work, there might be a tendency to view those as sort of an autonomous block of pointy-haired people. But um, a line manager versus someone in the C-suite at, say, a large organization, there is an awful lot of difference between those people. Like the, the number of org chart lines between you and a line manager is significantly less than that line manager and the CIO. Um, so understand here that we're talking about a potentially quite broad range of people. Um, so the conversation becomes figuring out which of those people to target, get in front of, and um, ultimately selling things and what things to them. So you're figuring out a little bit about your buyers here. Who are these people um, and how does the buying process work? Now, what you're used to in terms of a buying process is a system. And that's kind of the resume interviewing and hiring system. So your buyers are ultimately the ones that are signing checks, but they don't go out, you know, the CIO of a company or a director or whoever it may be, they don't go out and preside over ever every individual hire of somebody that's going to help the company with application development. That simply wouldn't scale. So what they do is they preside over a system that puts an architect or a tech lead or whatever in charge of the technical portion of this interview process. Then they preside over a system that sets out the interview questions and it works with human resources to make sure they're fair and all these other types of things. And then once that's in place, they kind of wash their hands of it. Maybe line manager or director type person at an organization will want to participate a little bit in the interview process. They might want to sign. But what you've really got is that person who is ultimately responsible for but not super interested in the interview process in which you actually do impress your peers. So understand that when you're talking about targeting management or the C-suite, it's a bit of a natural shakeup, certainly from salaried employment, but also from a lot of what happens with probably a lot of you listening out there as freelancers, where you go through a process of vetting or evaluation that looks fairly similar to doing uh, an interview process. So with all of that backstory in mind, 
let's kind of take a look at um, at what this might look like and uh, maybe first kind of who these people are. So when you're thinking about leadership in general, um, you've got line managers and line managers are the people that you as a salaried individual report to. Um, they're at the first level of organizational responsibility. And there's going to be a bit of variance there. You know, if you have a really flat organization or a small organization, there might only be like one level of reporting. So the manager might also be the CIO. And that might be the person that has all of the budget for anything related to IT. Uh, likewise, you could be at an enterprise scale organization that I was describing earlier, in which case the line manager might report up through like six different people eventually to the CEO. In an organization that's larger, the line manager may or may not have a whole lot of budget authority. Like there will be organizations where the line manager can certainly be responsible for writing checks, and then there will be some where it isn't. You'll even get, um, I think, some more technically oriented organizations out around Silicon Valley where you have line managers that are just kind of more experienced software developers. Um, so I'm mentioning all this because that first level of management, line management, may or may not even be your buyer. That person might not actually have the authority to buy your services as a freelancer. Up above them, that uh, the next kind of layer of the organization are getting more into middle management. These people are often the director layer, if you will. Directors, it would be a little more unusual for them not to have budget. Usually directors are able to write checks or make decisions, so to speak. And generally at the director level, this is somebody that has the authority to hire you. Uh, above that, you're going to kind of have this vice president VP layer. Um, these people are executives, but they might not be in the C-suite. Um, again, uh, you know, even above directors. So almost certainly that's going to be a layer of folks that have the authority to make a hire. And then above that, you have the C-suite, which I would argue if, if so facto can hire you. That's kind of the definition of an officer is somebody that can speak for and sign for the company. Um, and then I guess, you know, about that, you're going to have the chief executive. Um, why am I mentioning all that? Um, only kind of to make you aware of that these are not all the same person. They don't all have the same experience. They don't profile the same. And so when you're thinking about who to target, you want to be a little bit more granular because if you kind of take a cookie cutter pitch and approach to getting in front of these people, dealing with a line manager is going to be different than dealing with a CIO. So you probably want to get more granular in thinking about who it is there that you're going to approach. And you also want to make sure um, to try to get away from maybe wasting your time on somebody that can't actually make a decision. And why might that be? Well, when you are, uh, how do I, a better way I guess of putting this is you can potentially be looking at a situation where you have one buyer or you can potentially have what I'm kind of think of as a composite buyer. So what do I mean by that? You have one buyer. If you go and you have some magic beans that you want to sell to somebody and that somebody is a director or a VP, you know that that person can just snap their fingers and buy your magic beans. If, on the other hand, you go to a developer that works for the company and you convince that developer that these magic beans are great, the developer might be sold, but the developer has to go to the manager and say, hey, I want to buy some magic beans. And the manager says, sure, I'll sign off on magic beans, but we really need to get director involved. This is what I mean by a composite buyer. Now you're kind of making multiple sales and some of them indirect. You're convincing a person to want something from you. And you're also convincing that person to go to another person and convince that person. And that gets super complicated. And eventually it gets so complicated that we create this aforementioned system to deal with it. 
uh, we being, you know, the industry in general, which is the interview process. You get sufficiently complicated at having a composite buyer. And eventually you just say like, okay, we're going to stop dealing with this at all. No one person really has the authority here per se. We have a system that somebody signs off on, but doesn't pay a lot of attention to. And that's kind of the worst position to be in if you're selling something. And it also, with the presence of a system, it's the system acts as a gatekeeper. So if you go to, um, you know, say you, you, you find a VP at a company for whom you want to do some work, you find that VP, you interrupt that person at dinner and say, hey, I really want to do work for you. And the VP says, okay, you've got five minutes uh, or five seconds or whatever to convince me before I ask the wait staff to have you leave. Um, why should I hire you? And if it's kind of like, well, you know, I'm going to do some generalized application development for you, then that VP is going to say, that's great. We've got a link on our website where you can send your resume, go away and leave me alone. So you need to be offering something a little bit different and um, compelling to that person in order to get in front of them and to have a meaningful conversation about how you can help them and how and why they should hire you. So um, what does that look like? Uh, let's kind of talk through next steps and how you get in front of these people and how you have that conversation. The very first thing you need to do is you need to have some kind of offering that isn't just, I'm going to show up and execute general labor for you because that's going to, you know, as I said, get you in front of the system. Um, so stop and think about these people and start to differentiate and identify them. Go maybe look at LinkedIn at a company you'd like to work for, or maybe even better yet, think of companies for whom you've done some work in the past and think about actual um, management, directors, VPs, and execs that you've interacted with and fix a person in your mind. And that's where you're going to start to anchor this. Who is this person that you're going to pitch to? Pitch, uh, pitch an, uh, pick an actual individual human to kind of be an av avatar. So you're not selling to leadership and you're not even selling to a VP of software development. You're selling to Susan, who was a VP of software development in a company you did some work with before. That's the very first step. So um, in the kind of like content marketing business that I'm in these days, that's known as persona development. I guess if um, you're in organizations, it's the same kind of thing in user experience. You're thinking of uh, these personas and, and how you can speak to them. So that's kind of absolutely step one. Um, identify a persona that you're going to be talking to. And when you do that, if you don't already have a firmed up offering beyond application development, you should be thinking in terms of a niche. And that you know, gets harped on a lot in the free agent world. Um, but I can't overstate the importance of it here for the simple reason that lacking a niche, there is just nobody that's going to want to listen to you that's a buyer. Uh, it's always going to be, yeah, okay, you know, you're a generalist, go talk to the system. So the niche is first up and it's um, most important, so you've got to pick that. In order to do that, your skills are critical because you can't serve a niche if you don't have the skills to do so, but you need to cross-reference your skills against what it is that these folks, these personas, Susan, the VP of Software Development, what does she need? So the first thing um, that I would want you to think about and understand is, in a very real way, humanizing Susan and thinking about her and what gets her either promoted or fired. That sounds a little stark and, and maybe extreme, but that is really 
the most meaningful place to start. What is it that causes a Susan to get advanced versus what is it that causes her major problems? What are the things that go right or wrong in the organization? Does she deliver a major project on time or even ahead of schedule and under budget? Um, or does she keep kind of running over with an endless litany of excuses, none of which um, really ever seem to amount to anything satisfying or remediation plans? It's just always, oh, sure, we're three months late, but I swear we'll have it in the next three months. So start to understand those patterns and what results in good and bad outcomes for those people. And I want you to understand that I'm making a distinction here very deliberately I'm talking about good and bad outcomes for that person in terms of their career, their ambitions, their hopes and dreams as a person. I'm not talking about their company, what goes well for company XYZ, literally the person. Because when a person is making a buying decision, even with a company's money and with the company's authority, that's still a personal and often emotionally based decision. They're looking at it and they're going to try to be rational and logical and maybe evaluate RFPs and all that, but there is a lot of emotion tied up in that spend, uh, whether it's their personal money or the company's money. And they are not going to be capable of separating their own personal fate from what is good or isn't good for the company. So subconsciously in their head, there is this idea that their interests and the company's interests are aligned, but they're always going to be informed by their own interests. How do I look good? How do I get ahead? How do I do good things in this role? And yeah, you know, make the company money and have good outcomes, but also how do I get a promotion or how do I not get fired? So that's the first thing you really have to start to do is to understand these people, empathize with what matters to them and what is going to have what kind of effects on their career and their roles and start to get into that mind space. Um, so that's kind of the first thing is, is to look at the world through their eyes. Um, the next thing is to perhaps get a little bit more granular and say like, well, okay, um, you know, being late or failing to deliver on key things or failing to manufacture a win out of the gate in the first six months of taking on a new role, those things are trouble. Um, now, maybe you can come up with a niche or offering that addresses something that sweeping, but most likely you're going to need to get a little bit more granular than that. So um, the next kind of step there is to understand what these people have in the way of pain points and, um, you know, what you might be able to do to alleviate them. So, for instance, to, to put a little bit more um, of a concrete take on this, uh, I've mentioned a little bit on the show that over the years I've done a good bit of uh, IT management and strategy consulting, and my focus or specialty in doing that was generally um, to assess code bases in a data-driven way that would help uh, IT leadership make decisions. So an example decision might be something along the lines of, you know, I've got this aging code base, should I sunset it and start fresh, or can we evolve this to be more modern and to attract um, more modern talent or whatever the case may be? That was a specialty um, that I had and kind of developed, you know, almost by trial and error, figuring out some of this stuff as I went. And when I think about what this means for people in the C-suite, there are some very specific sorts of things that come to mind. For instance, backing up a little and thinking what gets you promoted or fired, you know, existentially for an executive. A big thing is you take a new role. So maybe you used to be the VP of software development, Susan, our VP of software development. 
uh, takes a new role as the CIO of some new smaller company that she goes to work for. So it is a big opportunity for her. She is now the head of all IT at um, a company and she wants to hit the ground running. So one of the first things she wants to do is make some initial calls to sort of shake things up a bit and to learn about like what she has in this organization's uh, application portfolio. What's going on in these code bases? You know, I've got these developers and architects that are telling me stories about how great things are, but I've got these constituent uh, users and stakeholders that are telling me a different story. And, I, you know, I don't even know where things lined up. Um, with my practice, one of the things that I found to be enormously um, beneficial for people like this was to come in and, and do something along the lines of like, let me help you get your bearings. So a big pain point up front is, I need to get started and I am completely lost. I don't know who to believe when it comes to this set of uh, applications because obviously everybody that's talking to me has skin in the game and they predate me here. Um, so one of the pains that I can speak to was I can come in and provide an impartial take. This is far from the biggest value proposition of what I was doing that I could articulate, but it's maybe one of the easiest to understand. So Susan, the human being, is a little bit lost and inundated in this new executive role, and she just wants an understanding of, of what she has here. That's a pain point. Um, it's a pain point that speaks to a larger kind of existential concern. How do I get off on a good foot in this new role? And how do I not stumble in my first CIO opportunity and never get one again? And so you start to kind of grasp here what I'm talking about. So walking that back a little to how do you get in front of someone who sits in the C-suite, I'll talk through some more tactics in a bit, but hopefully you're starting to get the idea there, which is in this case, I have an offering. I have something I can do that addresses a very real pain that Susan, the human being, has in her leadership role. So if I were in this restaurant or at a cocktail party or whatever, and I happened upon Susan, I'm not any longer saying, hey, I can come in and sling some Ruby code or whatever. She mentions that she is um, taking over a new role as the CIO, and I'd say something like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, I um, actually have worked with a number of CIOs in the past uh, when they're new and kind of getting their bearings to help them understand what they've got going in their code bases. Uh, and here are some of the things that I found when doing that. So Susan is now going to be probably listening with somewhat rapt attention, like, oh, wow, I didn't even know that was a thing. I just figured I would have to line up all these different architects in my organization and kind of triangulate all of their opinion to some middle. I didn't even know that was a service that existed that could give me an impartial um, assessment. Okay, so all of that is kind of under the heading here so far that I've been talking about of, you know, developing an offering, something you can do. And it's hard for me to connect the dots for all of you out there listening. So I'm kind of speaking to my own past experience. Um, it's not like I sat down one day and I said, this is the kind of thing that I'll offer as part of my IT management and strategy consulting practice. It was the sort of thing that I opportunistically came to understand through a lot of conversations that was a pain point for these people. So when I'm talking about, number one, getting into their head and trying to empathize, and number two, understanding their pain points, um, I want you to realize that this is a process that will never stop. The more you are out there in the world selling your services, the more you're going to learn and refine it into potential offerings. So don't think you're just going to sit down with a clipboard one day and, and come up with this and just get started. It is definitely a process. So as you're developing your offering, you're going to, um, and I'll speak to 
kind of uh, elevator pitch here in a bit, but um, as you're developing your offering, you want to be receptive to and try to have conversations as much as you can uh, with these folks and, and learn about what they're struggling with, both um, from an existential uh, personal perspective and then kind of more tactically day-to-day what their organization struggles with. So another thing in thinking through your offering and how to actually get in front of leadership and how to make them care is to realize that um, the things that developers tend to care about in granular detail, um, they generally don't care about. So you might get in arguments uh, on the internet about design patterns and the best way to do this or how to set up a CI server. And you need to accept the hard truth that management doesn't care. Leadership doesn't care. Leadership is probably by and large with that sort of thing going to have an attitude toward it. Like, please don't make this my problem. I only care about this if our lack of it is something that is going to get in the way of me getting promotions instead of getting fired. And that sounds pretty cynical, but kind of tracing it back through empathy with them. They have their own performance indicators and things that they're trying to do. And those things are a lot less granular than which continuous integration tool to pick. They're interested in things that have to do with um, delivering projects, um, you know, on a certain timeline or within a certain budget, uh, realizing um, key objectives for the organization and so on and so forth. So if you try to kind of force them into this type of granular conversation, unless they're fresh out of being an individual contributor themselves and sort of back in the weeds for nostalgia's sake, they're almost going to resent having to care about this. So what they really care about is not these granular concerns. They do not want to settle disputes that you're going to have with the architect about whether the builder pattern makes sense here or not. Absolutely don't want to do that, nor should they, because if they're focusing on that, they're not focusing on strategy. Um, in an organization that just doesn't make sense for that distribution of labor. So you have to first understand that, and then you have to take a deep breath and not care. And you also have to not view them as being part of a Dilbert cartoon, you know, the aforementioned pointy-haired boss, because they don't care about that. So don't blame them for not caring about that. They shouldn't. It doesn't make sense for them to care about that. And even if it did make sense for them to care about it, you still shouldn't uh, resent them for it because you need to get in their head. You need to empathize. You're trying to sell them something. And in order to effectively sell people something, you need to care about making their lives easier and bludgeoning them with granular details about your craft is not making their lives any easier. Um, Why am I being all lectury here and on the side of management about this? Um, For the sake of your own success in understanding, you need to agree with it or not, be sympathetic and empathetic to uh, what it's like to walk in their shoes. And you can't do that nearly as easily if you're kind of putting a thin veneer over a cover of scorn. So that all kind of has to do with coming up with an offering and socializing it. You're going to need to coalesce all of this into your niche that uh, takes your expertise and makes it interesting to leadership. And that is, again, it's the process that I've mentioned. This is not an easy thing to do. You're going to start with one, and then you're going to have to constantly revisit it as you get feedback. In all probability, you're going to pick a niche, and you're going to start talking to you know executives or whatever that you run into at parties, wherever this happens, and you're going to get a lot of feedback in the form of blank stares. 
that is feedback. It's not interesting to them. Tune it. Keep talking. Keep having conversations until you see that light come on when you're talking to them where they say, huh, okay, that's interesting. Now you're on to something. And um, you're going to take your niche and you're going to refine it um, after each conversation. And that is going to lead you to this broader topic that I'm talking about here, which is the offering. So to tie it back to the topic at hand, in order to target management in the C-suite, you need an offering that they can pull the trigger on, that they care enough about pulling the trigger on, that they will um, go to you and write a check and bring you in without sending you through the uh, interview machinery. So that niche, that offering is something you're going to be iterating on with this combination of empathy, uh, understanding their pain points, um, you know, not having scorn for them, etc. Okay, so let's assume that you've got a niche, a good working niche, a good working offering that you can bring to them. Kind of the next thing that you're going to do is take that and turn it into and practice with an elevator pitch. Um, now, to some extent, you'll already have done this in, in sussing out what your niche is. But once you've got a niche, once you get those eyebrows raised during casual conversations, you want to refine that. Um, you want to practice it to where instead of just a raised eyebrow, perhaps followed five minutes later by a yawn, you want that uh, to result in a let's talk about this later, let's have coffee, you know, let's schedule a call next week. So um, kind of in between coming up with this offering, then actually start trying, starting to try to execute on a properly um, managed sales pipeline, you'll want to kind of practice and get that elevator pitch down. Like maybe you, um, you find some people you know, a family member, friend, whatever, and work on it with them and, and get that a little bit more refined. Of course, there is no avoiding that you're going to be having to practice as you go. In both my consulting practice and this content agency, I'm constantly doing that. The pitch gets better with each conversation. Um, and then I cringe looking back six months ago at the conversations I was having. So, you know, get it better, but don't procrastinate forever in trying to actually get in front of these folks. Okay, so all of that is uh, a lot of kind of philosophical background and then working out your niche and understanding what it takes to appeal to these people. So let's kind of round out here by talking tactics, assuming that you have all that in place, which means assuming that you empathize with the leadership and that you have something they might actually want and aren't just going to kick back to their system and tell uh, you to leave them alone. How do you actually then go about um, getting in front of them and targeting them? Um, so the first thing that will actually kind of dovetail nicely in both helping you with your refinement and getting good conversations is to try to schedule some interviews whose purpose is information gathering. Now, I know this sounds like a rehash of what I've been saying about refining your pitch and, um, you know, building an elevator pitch, building an offering and refining it. Um, but this is actually a sales tactic because, um, one of the things, you know, I get a lot of outreach and there's nothing quite like the fifth one of the day where you're like, all right, here we go. Somebody says, hey, Eric, I noticed that you own a business and we get people, you know, 5,000 new hot leads a day. You know, you gloss over that in the same way that your eyes gloss over the banner section at the top of a site because you just assume it's an ad regardless of what's there. That just becomes invisible to you. What doesn't become invisible to you if you're an executive is somebody reaching out and saying, look, I'm not really trying to sell you anything at the moment, but 
I'd love to pick your brain. That is pretty innocuous. Um, and it can be a really good way to have conversations, including sales conversations. Now, what I'll say is this, don't be disingenuous and scummy. If you line up a conversation with an executive where you say, hey, I'm thinking of offering this code base assessment service. Um, what I really wanna do is pick your brain. This is not a sales call. Don't make it actually a sales call. Lead into that call with something like, look, I'm not gonna lie. If you wanted to write me a check today, I would love it, but I'm truly not gonna try to sell you anything. The purpose of this call really is for me to do some market research and to understand your pain points. That's kind of all the inoculation you need there. That will put the uh, elephant in the room. It'll kind of get rid of it in a nice way where you're saying like, look, uh, you know, I'm not kidding. Or uh, I mean, I'm not going to be obtuse. I would love business, but like truly I'm not going to bother you with sales again. So let's just have a conversation. You would be surprised every now and then that will actually result in um, continued calls and potential actual sales. But it also results in something that can be equally valuable to you as you build out your business and try to get more directly in front of your buyers, which is to further that empathy and that understanding of their pain points. So um, let's say the first thing to be doing that can sometimes lead to sales is to schedule these good faith information gathering market research kind of calls. Another tactic that I would encourage you to do that maybe is kind of the next logical follow-up is to start practicing and working on a good email kind of cold or warmish outreach pitch. And this pitch has to be very them focused. So you've been expending all this effort to get into the head of this executive, to understand his or her pain points, to understand what will make their lives easier. Write emails or LinkedIn messages or whatever that lead with that. I understand, Susan, that people like you have these pains and I think I can help. That is powerful. Don't write emails or whatever that lead with like six paragraphs of how great you are. You know, I've been doing this for years and I have the following skills. That is, you know, everything we do in the resume writing cover letter pitching world is the complete backwards training for how to actually do well when it comes to having a business or a practice where you focus ad nauseum on yourself and trying to convince someone to hire you over 800 other generalists. It is, you know, you are learning the absolute worst possible practices for what I'm talking about here today, which is that you want to get in front of a leader, get their attention, and you've got a few minutes to really stand out. The way you do that in front of some hiring gatekeeper person is to go on about yourself. The way you do that in front of a busy executive that's going to sign a large check is to make it about them. So as you're kind of doing these information gathering calls, get a pitch together that really focuses on Susan and how you are able to help Susan. Um, and once you feel good about that, you can start doing that kind of cold outreach and um, seeing how those conversations go. These are, you know, in tandem, a great set of tactics for getting from a few seconds of attention from a leader to an actual scheduled conversation with that person. So tactics, what else? Uh, there is the obvious one of, um, you know, those are both sort of cold. Uh, do some warm stuff too. Like you've worked at a lot of companies, maybe as an employee, um, maybe as a service provider, a vendor, a consultant, whatever it may be. Uh, go back into that network and look at your former colleagues, bosses, et cetera, um, to see people who kind of fit into this um, 
array of buyers. Who do you know that is now in a position where they would make sense as a buyer? You know, they're a director or up um, currently in their role and they feel somewhat friendly towards you. Um, you can have those information gathering market research calls. You can pitch them um, or you can just have a conversation in general to catch up. That is going to be a great source of relatively sympathetic folks that are happy to talk to you. Um, so that's a good way to get in front of people. Um, if you're currently an employee and you're thinking of going freelance, just schedule some exploratory kind of conversations where you say, like, look, I'm, um, and I'm talking about like VPs or people at your own company. Um, you know, maybe you can do a buy them lunch or offer to do a brief meeting where you say, I'd like to understand more about how the business works. You have worked your way up here and I'm just interested in your story. Um, get in front of them by not so much beating them over the head with anything that you're trying to do, but asking them, you know, to learn from them, to understand more about their lives, etc. Another great tactic is to ask for referrals. When you are asking for referrals, that can really be anyone in your network. So that doesn't have to be that you are going out to Susan and asking her uh, to introduce you to Daryl, who is another fellow CIO. Um, you can reach out to anybody in your network and ask them for an introduction to somebody. <clears throat> if you're trying to get in front of C-suite people, though, when you're reaching out for a second degree connection, what I would suggest is that you reach out to a Susan or you know to whomever with a specific person or people in mind. So don't reach out and say, hey, can you introduce me to any C-level people in your network? That's, that's too much homework. It's too overwhelming. Nobody is going to respond to that. If instead you say, hey, um, I think I could really help Bill, um, you know, this director of app dev that you know, but even if I can't help him, I'd be interested in picking his brain. Are you up for making a quick introduction to Bill? Most of the people that you're friendly with will be happy to help with something like that. Um, you know, there's always going to be exceptions if the person says, oh, I don't know, I just, I don't even know that person. I just connected with them randomly or I don't like that guy, you know. Not foolproof, but it should work pretty well. So I guess if I'm looking at this thematically to kind of summarize these tactics, it's number one, rely uh, on your network for uh, warm introductions. You want the introductions to be as warm as possible. If you're doing things on your own and you're kind of making cooler or cold introductions, lead with either a very clear and concise statement of how you can add value for the person that you're reaching out to or else with, um, you know, an invitation to kind of share their experience and their wisdom with you in a way where you're not going to annoy them. Those uh, kind of are the sum total of good tactics to get conversations with, um, you know, people that are busy and that command a lot of organizational respect and budget. I'm trying to think here. This is, uh, I think, pretty well kind of collects the thoughts that I wanted to talk through about targeting management in the C-suite. Um, so we're going to roll it all up into a little bit of closing advice here. I would say it's really about humanizing these people and understanding that they are individuals that have um, needs and wants that you could ultimately sympathize with if you get into their shoes. So humanize them, understand what they're looking for, what they're trying to accomplish, and what hurts them and what is an obstacle to them along the way. And then start to think about how your set of skills and knowledge could remove that obstacle and alleviate those pain points. And that is all going to lead you uh, to potentially a good offering or a niche. 
But even beyond that, it's going to lead you to a position where you can have a conversation with them that is helpful to them. And really, that's what it's all about. So targeting leadership. You're talking about targeting people that are important in the organization, that make a lot of decisions, and that don't have a lot of time. So the way to target them is to make sure that you're not wasting their time and that you're offering something of value. And to offer them something of value, it has to be, you know, in terms of a sympathetic conversation, that can be a catharsis, you know, hey, tell me about your pain points. Like that can be a value. Um, but ideally, it should be oriented around, you know, listening to what they're dealing with and then offering ideas for how, the, you know, they can have a little bit more luck with that. So rolling up that summary into, I guess, one final pitch is that the way to get in front of leadership is to really spend a lot of time and effort developing expertise that's of value to them and then leading with that value without trying to trick them or to waste their time. Yeah, I guess that's, you know, pretty well it for my pitch on how to uh, target those leaders. And, you know, for what it's worth, I feel that I do have a, you know, a bit of authority because I uh, act as sales now for my um, content marketing agency. Um, These folks were historically my buyers with my uh, management strategy consulting services. And I also once upon a time uh, was a CIO. So I have a good bit of experience with this from both sides of the aisle and a good bit of experience with the amount of pitches that you'll get inundated with that are sort of tone deaf at times. Um, so you can really stand to be sort of a, you know, a light in an otherwise dark place. If you just come to them and say, hey, I get you. I think I can help. Let's chat. And I'm not going to try to trick you. Um, you'd be amazed at how low the bar can be uh, when put in those terms. So, um I guess that's all I'll say about this here. I'm going to wrap here and do picks on my own. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. The first pick that I have is a uh, book that I listened to over the last week while I was actually doing a move. Um, So I had no internet in this townhouse that we have moved out of and has been on the market that we're now selling. So moving the rest of my stuff out of there. And all I was doing last week was carrying boxes around and listening to eBooks. I listened to one called the E-Myth Revisited. um, And it's got a longer title than that, but it was about don't mistake that E for electronic, you know, as in e-commerce. It is uh, the entrepreneurial myth revisited, I believe. 
And it is a fairly old book, but the revisited is a reprise allotted. At any rate, it's a fascinating book that talks about how to build um, a business and why a lot of entrepreneurs struggle and fail. Um, and it introduces some really interesting concepts. Fair warning, it does get a little woo-woo in the back half, at least for my taste. Uh, but overall, it's there's a lot of value in there. And the first half to me was solid gold. Um, so don't take that as a knock. I mean, it's still my pick. It just, there were parts at the end that for me were a little bit like, well, okay. Um, anyway, that's pick number one. Um, since I'm doing a solo show this week, I will um, get a little bit of uh, self-serving with pick number two. I don't think I've ever picked it on the show before, but it's the most recent book that I wrote, which is called Developer Hegemony, The Future of Labor. And this book uh, will summarize by saying it answers the question, why is it that software developers tend to be among the least important people in the software development industry below project managers and product managers and line managers and all sorts of other managers? Uh, why is it that we as software developers have all of these layers of management above us where other knowledge work professions like, say, doctors and lawyers don't have that? So the book is an answer to that question of why and then a series of proposals and thoughts on how we can change that. Um, so that is my second pick. Um, and that is a wrap here for episode 316 of The Freelancer Show. Thank you for listening and we will catch you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.